Well, a little trivia for you. What tragic, tragic event happened on November 22nd, 1963? November 22nd, 1963. What tragic happened in a public place in Dallas, Texas, you know? The assassination of John F. Kennedy. How many of you knew that? Hands up nice and high. You historians, you. Oh, very good. It was a tragic event. The 35th president of the United States was in a motorcade seated right next to his wife, Jackie, when his life was snuffed out by an assassin's bullet. It's a, day that will, it's a date that will live in infamy because of the tragic events that took place there in the streets of of Dallas. And, and of course, uh, since then, certainly some of the mystery surrounding his death and, and Kennedy's sheer celebrity have, have really uh, caused this, this, uh, this tragedy to remain quite current, uh, quite fresh in our minds, and uh, to keep that tragic date alive, as it were. We will, you ask almost anybody who has a loose handle on history, what happened on the 22nd of November 1963, and they'll tell you about the death of JFK. But what many people don't know or aren't aware of is that on that very same day, the very same day on which JFK was killed, another very famous person died as well. He wasn't as much of a celebrity as Kennedy. Somebody just shouted it out there. Hang on. He wasn't as much of a, of a celebrity as Kennedy was. And with, but with, and with all due respect to the late president, I would suggest that this man was was and is far more influential. Uh, and his, he was a professor, a philosopher, he was a theologian, he was an author, he wrote over 30 books. Many of his books are theological in nature, although he's best known for his children's novels. He wrote a series of seven books uh, under the banner that titled The Chronicles of Narnia, from which three uh, major motion films uh, have been made. Some of you, no doubt, have come to faith either directly or indirectly because of Lewis's writing and ministry. And if you yourself weren't impacted by him in that way, you know somebody, many of you would know somebody who was directly or indirectly led to Jesus through the ministry of this man. You mentioned, his, you mentioned him to uh, the great academics and great thinkers even of our time, and the, his, his name commands respect. You mentioned him to children, and his name evokes smiles. His name is Clive Staples Lewis, or as was mentioned just a moment ago, C.S. Lewis, or Jack, to those who knew him personally. While Lewis is, is best known in public for his writing, his biographer tells us that he was best known in private for his humility, for his loving demeanor. One of his biographies, Lyle Dorset, describes Lewis as a humble man who taught adults and children alike. He personally answered thousands of letters from people who were asking for his advice and wisdom. Thousands personally responded to them. He took it as an honor, as a privilege. And Dorset writes, quote, He treated each correspondent as if he or she were as important as the king or queen. Now that is a man marked by humility. By God's grace, Lewis was able to walk, relatively speaking, in freedom or in victory over something that many of us really struggle with, and that's pride. 
Pride is never far from many of us. The Bible has a lot to say about the problem of pride. And in our study today, we're going to see that one of the biggest problems with pride or arrogance is that it keeps us from being a loving person. Where pride moves in, love moves out. And as we have seen in our study on the subject of love, the Apostle Paul has said that if we have not love, we have not anything. If we are not loving, we are nothing. Lewis said this about pride. He said that pride is one of those sins that everybody loathes when we see it in someone else, but we hardly ever imagine that we are guilty of it ourselves. Right? We hate, we, you, there's nothing that grates you more than an arrogant person, and yet so often many of us, we don't see pride and arrogance in ourselves. He goes on to say that, you know, that uh, in one of his books, he writes that, that many people are willing to admit to all kinds of, of faults in their own life, all kinds of sins. He, he said, I've heard of people who admit to a bad temper, people who admit to uh, sexual sin or cowardice, but rarely will admit to pride. And many people seldom, he says, show mercy to others who are proud and yet are so unaware of it in themselves. He goes on to say, the more proud we are, the more we dislike others who are proud. The reality is, is that pride is a prevalent issue. And in our series on love, uh, one of the things that occurs to us as we read through 1 Corinthians 13 is that pride is something Paul identifies as uh, inherently unloving. When I am proud, when I'm arrogant, when I'm conceited, uh, I am not loving. The challenge for us, though, is that we often fail to see pride and arrogance as a big deal in us. It's a big deal in you, but it's not a big deal in me. We overlook it. We don't see it. And I think one of the other problems we have is we don't see its connection to love, that it cancels out love, it diminishes love. And also, Many of us don't know how to deal with it. If I could convince you this morning that you are more proud than you realize, you'd still be left saying, but Ross, what do I do about it? Because it just comes so naturally, and it's true, because of our fallenness, because of our sin. That's why today I think is such an important message, because we're going to study what Paul says that love isn't. And one of the things that love is not is love is not arrogant. And I want to study this with you, if you would join me please, in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to focus on the end of verse 4 today, but for context we'll read from verses 1 through 7. Our series is called The More Excellent Way. This is from Paul. He, uh, at the beginning, at the outset of his teaching on love in 1 Corinthians 13, told his readers that he was going to show them a still more excellent way. He was in the context talking about spiritual gifts, and as much as spiritual gifts are important in the body of Christ, Paul says there's, a, there's something else that is more important still. There's something else that is greater still. There is a more excellent way than being spiritually gifted, and that is the way of love. And that's what he addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll begin reading at verse 1. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, like the ultimate expression of devotion. But have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes into, beginning of verse 4, a 15-point description of love. Both what it is and what it isn't. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Now that's where we are today. He continues, or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Our emphasis this morning is the end of verse 4 where he says that love is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. Make a note of that. Love is not arrogant. It is not conceited. It is not proud. If you have the New King James Version or the King James Version, I think it says that love is not puffed up. That's a a very helpful descriptive uh, way of rendering the meaning here that Paul is giving. If somebody is puffed up, they're inflated. They're built up about themselves. Uh, Arrogance and pride is is really a real selfish self-importance. It's an inflated view of yourself, especially in comparison to others. It's an inflated view of your knowledge, of your possessions, of your position, of your connections, you name it. it it's, pride shows itself up in all kinds of places, as we'll see in just a few moments, um, but it is a puffed upness. It's a seeing me over you. And in a theological sense, it, when we are proud and conceited, we are kind of vying for supremacy with God. Now, no good Bible-believing Christian would ever presume themselves to do that, but when you and I rebel against God, when we disobey Him, that's really essentially what we're doing. It's an act of arrogance against the authority of God. Pride, being proud, being conceited, being arrogant, is being puffed up. It's an inflated view of yourself. Now sometimes we'll say something like we'll say something like, you know, I'm proud of you. Maybe you'll say to one of your children or your grandchildren, I'm so proud of you. Then I don't think that's at all a sinful thing necessarily to say. I think what you're communicating to them is that you uh, you're communicating affection, you're communicating a measure of admiration, and there's nothing sinful about that. I remember a friend of mine one time bemoaning the fact that through all the years of raising his children, he never told them that he was proud of them because he felt it was wrong to do so and he really regretted that and so I just want to say this right up front you don't need to bind yourself up this morning the the purpose of the message isn't to make you fearful and afraid to say something like I'm proud of you that's not sinful you're expressing appreciation or uh, you're commending somebody for a job well done and the good things you're seeing happening in them. It's also not sinful to take pride in your work, necessarily. It could be sinful if that makes you feel like you're better than somebody else. But when we say it's good to take pride in your work, we mean it's good to do your work to the best of your ability. And so I said to somebody in my family not too long ago, you want to do a job so that when it's done, you don't mind everybody knowing who did it. 
Not to make yourself look good, but that really just to show that you've put in a good effort. So you see what we mean. There's sometimes we'll talk about this in ways that aren't sinful, but we're talking today about arrogance, about a sinful attitude of heart where you see yourself as better than others and others lesser than you. It's a, an air of superiority. And in Corinth, it was, it was present. Paul called out arrogance and pride in the church, uh, including what they knew, their, their Bible knowledge. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment, but I want you to understand that as we read the Bible, I mean, you can't read the Scriptures without realizing that pride is a problem. Pride, loved ones, is a real, real problem. Pride was the first ever sin. Did you know that? Pride was the first sin, and I'm not talking about Adam and Eve. I'm talking about who? The devil. Many Bible students believe that Isaiah 14, as much as it had a historical context in the days of Isaiah, was also, is also a description of the fall of Satan. We know, we know very little about the fall of Satan other than we understand that it seems that he was a great angel uh, created by God for God's glory who rebelled against God. And Satan and his demons, his, Satan himself was is a fallen angel and his demons are also angels who rebelled with him. Now again, the Bible does not elaborate much on this, but many Bible students believe that Isaiah 14 provides for us somewhat of a description of what happened even before the Garden of Eden. And it says in Isaiah 14, verse 13, listen to what's said there. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. Now many students of the Bible believe that as much as that had an historical context, that is the attitude of the devil when he rebelled against God. Satan was envious of God's power and rebelled against him. And he led other angelic beings who were beautiful and more splendorous than we could ever imagine, who also desired the status and recognition that God had. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, pride is how the devil became the devil. Think about that. Pride is how the devil became the devil. Pride is a real problem, isn't it? Not only that, pride leads to more problems. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. You've seen that, right? People are arrogant and, you know, and, and full of themselves, and then it's not long before, I mean, they're just disgraced. They're made to look like fools because their, their weaknesses are shown. Now, Proverbs 13.10 says, Pride only brings quarrels. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. There's some people you can't tell them anything. And it causes real problems in their relationships. If you are rift with pride in your life, you are not going to be close to many people because people don't want to get close to you. Because your pride repels them. It's like that mosquito repellent you've been putting on. Because there's so many mosquitoes out, right? You put that DEET all over your body. And try not to get it in your face or your eyes because it burns. But you get it all over your body. And the mosquito comes along and says, Mmm, here's a tasty snack. And it gets close to you and says, Whoa! Back away. Pride is like DEET in the church. It keeps people away from you. It ruins relationships. Proverbs 16-18 says this, 
Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The downfall of many great people, nay, great leaders, has come on the heels of great arrogance. If you do not deal with pride in your heart, you are setting yourself up for tragedy. And likely others with you as well. Pride is a real problem. It was the first sin. It leads to more problems. Here's another problem with pride. God hates it. God hates arrogance. In fact, in Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, the, the God provides a list of some of the things He hates. And you know what's at the top of that list? Haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. That sounds like if you're taken all wrong, right? But haughty eyes. It means pride. It's an air of arrogance, an air of superiority. And God hates it. Also, God actively opposes pride. He actively opposes pride. Listen to a couple of verses. They both say the same thing. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, which would you rather? What place would you rather be in? The one who's receiving grace from God or the one who has God as your opponent? How about First uh, Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Imagine that you were going into a tennis match and you are, you are everybody's looking at you and they want to see how, how are you going to do here in this tennis match. And you're there and you do your stretching and, and some of you are pretty good at tennis. you got your wristbands on and you're all ready to go. You've done your warm-up. But it's a surprise opponent. And you're ready to go. You're feeling pretty good. You're in the move. You're, you get your grooves on. You're moving side to side, back and forth. You're ready to go, feeling confident, feeling ready. And all of a sudden, your opponent walks onto the court. It's none other than Serena Williams. I don't care how good you are. You ain't as good as she is. And I don't care what kind of possibilities could ever transpire. It would take a miracle if you even had a chance of winning against Serena Williams. Or how about you're going into a cooking competition and your opponent is Gordon Ramsay, right? Even if you happen to cook better than him, his, you know, his bullish attitude would make you just give up anyway, right? Or how about you're going into a race, right? You race, you got your car all souped up, your Dodge Grand Caravan all ready to go, and you look next to you in the next lane and there is James Hinchcliffe, the Canadian race driver, ready to race you. Here's the thing. Uh, just as in you wouldn't stand a chance in any of those scenarios, what kind of a chance do you think you stand in whatever it is you're trying to do when God opposes you? I read it again. God opposes the proud. If you and I allow ourselves to persist in pride, God will go round the net to the other side of the court and will oppose us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really want to live my life like that. Especially when in Jesus, Jesus died so that I could live for God and experience His power and His favor in my life. God opposes the proud. He actively opposes the proud. That's a problem. Here's another problem with pride. Pride divides people because it's relentlessly competitive. When we're proud, when we're arrogant, it comes from a sense of competition, of I've got to be better than you. Lewis says this. He says, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the point is 
that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed that someone else is the, being the big noise. You can tell the date from which he's writing here. The big noise, the life of the party. Two of a trade never agree. Now, you want to get clear what pride is, is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Listen, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that, that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And that's what happens, right? That's why pride is a bottomless pit of relational ruin. Because it means in whatever relationship you're in, whether it's, it's with friends, whether it's with coworkers, whether it's with siblings whether it's in your marriage or in your church, pride makes you always have to be better. And when you've always got to be better, what does that lead to you doing? It leads you to boasting, doesn't it? And that's what we talked about last week, about boasting. Boasting emerges out of pride. And so this is the, the issue is that pride is relentlessly competitive. That's why it's a problem, because it cancels out love. Remember, when I love somebody, I'm concerned for them. I care for them. Love is others-oriented, but pride is inherently selfish. It's about me. Worse, it's about me over you. Where when we love people, we're really kind of saying, you before me, or you ahead of me. If you want to know how proud you are, Want to do a pride test here? If you want to know how pride, proud you are, let me ask you this. How much do you dislike it when other people snub you? How much do you dislike it when others don't take notice of you? How much do you dislike it when others do better than you or get ahead of you? Test yourself with this. Think about this. How much does it bother you? The greater internal anger and turmoil that rises up in that, the greater the pride. It's a problem. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. It is not conceited. And then he says it's not rude. We'll cover that next time. Pride has many. Pride is a problem for many reasons. Now let me talk about some of the sources of pride, and this will this will just well, this will make your day. Believe me, it made my day thinking about this. Pride has many sources. So let me think about some sources of pride with you. I can be proud of I can be proud of what I know. In Corinth, I mentioned a moment ago, this is this was a big problem. Back in First Corinthians eight, uh, Paul addressed the issue of their knowledge and knowledge of good things too, Bible knowledge. Bible dolls. He said back in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, uh, talking about this, an issue that was arising in the church, he says to them, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. That's arrogance. 
but uh, but love builds up, builds others up. Now, in the context of Corinth, there was a dispute going on because uh, there was this issue of food that was being offered to idols. This seems far removed from many of us, but uh, what was happening in, in Corinth is that there was uh, part of the idol worship in the city involved offering food that was then oftentimes sold after the worship was over of these pagan gods. It was sold in the marketplace. And there's many Christians that had a strong conviction that it was wrong to eat food offered up to idols. There was many other Christians, though, that knew it's just food and the idols are nothing. They're just idols. So don't worry about it. Fire up the barbecue, cook it up, and eat it. But what was happening, and you know what? The Apostle Paul agreed with them. It is just food. But the issue he took up with them is that people were using their superior knowledge of God's Word, their, their better handling on uh, the truth, even their spiritual maturity and knowledge to grieve other people. They weren't concerned about the convictions or the concerns of others and just went ahead and did what they wanted. And Paul cautioned them. Knowledge puffs up. You know a lot of stuff that's good. Knowing things is vitally important. Uh, right? The truth, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. It's important to know things and understand things. But in my sinful heart, if I'm not careful, it can do something to me. It can make me feel superior to you and that your feelings, your convictions don't matter or even foolish or even dumb. And I can demean you as I treat you unkindly. This, I'm sure this would never happen at Arendelle, but I've heard it does happen from time to time in the church in general. People divide and fight over all kinds of things they are quite certain of. For example, sometimes people divide over their understanding of how God works to save us. There's some who believes that our, believe that our salvation is firstly comes from us responding to God. There's others who believe, no, no, it's firstly God ministering to us. And then we respond all because uh, God ministers to us. Arminianism, Calvinism, ever heard of them? And some people, while people disagree... Many people take it to another level and, and assume in their own hearts that you are spiritually immature compared to me. And we're all suspicious of each other, that they must not really be a Christian since they don't have a good handle on this kind of doctrine. Now, you might hear that and say, well, that's crazy. It's happening all the time. Or sometimes people will uh, get real, real, real sure that they've got God's end times program all figured out. They know exactly the order of events that will take place at the end of history, and they've got Bible verses. They have studied the Word diligently and, and well and admirably and have a clear system of how it's all going to work out in the end. Others look at that and say, well, no, that's totally wrong because... And they'll give another whole slew of verses and say, this is what's going to happen in the end. No, Jesus isn't going to come back first. This is going to happen first. And, and, and then somebody else comes in and says, well, you guys, you're all on drugs. You're all wrong. What really is happening, if you're really a serious Bible student, I mean, if you really have the Holy Spirit within you, you would see that. And, and people fight and argue. Now listen, it is, listen to me very carefully, I think it's important that you do have convictions about these things. Because the Bible addresses these things. But the danger comes in when I presume myself to be better than you or smarter than you or more biblical than you because I have 
a better quote-unquote view. This is, this is the pride of, of what I know. Or even how about church polity? I wrote a paper this week for the court, one of my courses I'm taking on church polity. Church polity is just church governance and how uh, churches ought to uh, organize themselves in, uh, as, according to Scripture. And uh, it's great. I, I read a book on five different views of how to organize a church. And you know what? Every single one of those authors believes that they're right. And most of them, except for one, use very persuasive biblical argumentation. So who's right? Well, I'm right. But the point is, (laughs) is that I have to be very, very careful as I go to discuss it in my program. This that I'm in a course of study I'm in. I'll probably be in a discussion this week about this. So myself and my classmates will have to be very careful that we make our argument, that we make our case faithfully and lovingly, but not arrogantly. You say, what's the difference? The difference is, is when I look at you and think to myself, never say this, of course, because I would never say this, because it makes me look bad, I'm too proud for that. Never saying to them, what is wrong with you? How, could you? how can you not see that this is right? We can be arrogant because of what we know. Notice, we can be arrogant because we are right. That can make us arrogant and proud. And God hates pride. He opposes pride. So look out for that. I can be arrogant because of what I know. I can be arrogant because of what I have. A better ability. Smarter than you. Faster than you. Happier than you. More popular than you. More successful than you. This was going on in Corinth. People were quite proud of what they had and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 he challenged them he said this what do you have that you did not receive now there is a question if you struggle with pride and possessions write this verse down and put it somewhere where you're going to see it maybe even put it right on the dash of your car that you take so much pride in right or maybe you put it on those buff muscles that you've got. You're all right. Yeah, I don't know what you do. You get a tattooed on there if you want. I don't know. No, don't do that. Never mind. Forget the tattoo. <laughs> what do you have that you did not receive? Now, a person will be very quick to say, well, hang on. I worked hard for this. Blood, sweat, and tears. I got calluses on my hand. I got a sore back. I got bad knees because I've worked hard for this. Well, you did work hard for that. And you know what? The Bible commends us for hard work, encourages hard work. But who gave you the ability to do that? You say, well, I learned. Well, who gave you the ability to learn? Well, my teachers. Well, who gave those teachers life? In fact, who gave you breath and energy? Who put food on your table? Who put, you see where we're going? You trace it all the way back to the beginning. You discover that everything I have ultimately is a gift from God. And so we've got to be careful, but we can be very proud about what we have. We can be very proud about what we have done, our achievements, our accomplishments. Again, who enabled you to do those things? We can be proud of what we have not done. I can be proud of the things I've done. I can be proud of the things that I have not done. Whew. At least I'm not as bad of a sinner as she is. Right? In one of the parables Jesus told, he had a Pharisee praying a prayer that went like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I think it is a good and godly thing to thank God for the pain and the sorrow that He has spared you by granting you repentance, by working in your life, by intervening so that you have not gone down the path others have done. I think that is good and right. But as we read what Jesus says about sin coming from the human heart, and we understand what the Bible says about our fallen human nature, and even if we would take the time just to listen and watch ourselves, we would find that while there's some things I have not done, there's lots of things I have done. And I can look at the most saddest, pitiful case I can imagine and must be compelled to confess if it weren't for God's grace. That'd be me. That'd be me. Beware, loved ones, we can be proud. We can be proud of being good. We can be proud of what we can do. Our abilities, our smarts, our athleticism, our musical talent. We can be proud and arrogant in terms of what we will not do. And I think here in terms of that independent spirit that's resonant in in many of our hearts, that independent spirit that says, I'm the boss, I'm the decision maker, I'm the, the play caller in my life. It's the person who is unteachable. It's the person that they don't have a biblical argument or explanation for it, but they're right. And you can't tell them otherwise. They'll do what they choose to do. And nobody else will get in their way. Pride comes from all kinds of places in our lives. It comes from the things, again, that I know, that I have, that I've done, that I've not done, that I can do, that I will do, and we could go on and on and on. My question for you is, you think about the biblical mandate, dear Christian brother or sister, as you think about the biblical mandate to love, is pride getting in the way of you loving? Is arrogance anchoring you back in lovelessness? Or are you walking in freedom, not perfectly, but by God's grace, victoriously loving one another? Maybe the thing to ask ourselves is, as I think about this list that we've just reviewed, the things we have, the things we've done, the things we've not done, the things that we can do, the things that we will do, the things that we know, is there any one of those things in particular that the Holy Spirit would be applying to your heart today? Is there any particular area in which you are arrogant and that needs to be addressed? One of my most favorite historical figures is Winston Churchill. And I have to confess to you shamefully, one of the things I most appreciate about Churchill was his cutting wit. Uh, One writer put it this way, that he he perfected the art of the (laughs) put-down. One time, he commented on one of his political opponents, and he said this about him. He said, he is a modest little man with much to be modest about. (laughs) And you think about that, and not only is it funny, but I think that could apply to me just as much as anybody, couldn't it? Could it apply to you? Do you have much to be modest about? But the Bible is patently clear that we do have much to be modest about. Each of us have sinned, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. We have not loved God. We have not honored God as we should. In every one of us is a streak of arrogance to one degree or another. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I have much to be humble about? I certainly do. When I consider my own sinful, selfish tendencies, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that I have every reason to be humble, to be lowly before God. When I look at my own self-promotion life and my own rebellion against God, I have much reason to lower my head rather than to lift it up or to inflate myself. Every one of us, to one degree or another, are saddled with pride. question is, what do you do about it? What, what do you do about it? Most of you here this morning, as we teach on love, most of you are eager for this teaching or tracking with this teaching because you want to be a loving person. And as much as there's temptation there to be a loving person so others will admire your lovingness, right, that's there. There, There's pride that's there. I believe that many of you, the reason you want to love, we're never free from mixed motives, but the reason many of you want to love is because you know Jesus and you know His love in your life. And you, you can't deny there's sometimes you'd like to be appreciated for your love, but the bottom line is you want to love others because God wants you to love others. And you see that this is imperative in the Christian life. This is the mark of the believer, Jesus said. They'll, they'll know your mind by the way you love one another. You know that the greatest commandment is to love God and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. You know that the aim of ministry is love, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.6. You know that love is essential. You've read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13 and you've seen that I'm nothing if I don't have love. I'm doing nothing if I'm not loving so you know this you you want to make your life count don't you 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 want to be the man to be the woman to be the young person who loves your neighbor who loves believers who shows the love of jesus you want that don't you but many of us are so frustrated with ourselves c.s lewis said oh to be free of me That's a prayer that many of us have today, and it's especially acute when we consider the issue of pride. So what do we do about it? How do we address pride in our lives? Well, this is what I want to leave you with today. Seven things that you can do to address pride in your life. So don't leave today and say, well, that sermon wasn't very helpful, all right? I got seven things for you. Pastoral wisdom is, is whatever wisdom this is worth, okay? Seven things that you can do to cultivate humility, to put aside pride in your life. Number one, regularly review the gospel. Regularly review the gospel. You can put aside pride by reviewing the gospel on a regular basis. Remind yourself of where it is you stand. I stand forgiven in a forever friendship with a holy God. And how is it that you got there? It wasn't by doing good stuff, was it? It was because of what Jesus did for you. I'm here. I have hope. I'm bound for heaven. All because of somebody else. When we review this, it reminds us, it helps us to be humble because it reminds us that everything I have comes to me by grace. In fact, 
The only thing I do deserve is God's wrath and judgment because of my sin. And yet God has been so good to me because of Jesus. And so remind yourself of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses, verse 3, Paul told the, uh, Paul, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1, Paul said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And he said in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's where our hope is found. And reviewing the Gospel helps to cultivate humility and lay aside pride. So that's the first thing, review the Gospel. Secondly, uh, you can put aside pride by giving thanks and expressing need in prayer. You can put aside pride by giving thanks and expressing need in prayer. When you are thankful to God, you are giving credit where credit's due, aren't you? When you express need, you are implicitly acknowledging, I'm limited in my ability. There's something here that I cannot accomplish on my own. And so I come to you, O God. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He might exalt you. So humble yourselves before God. How do I do it? How do I humble myself? I want Him to lift me up, right? So how do I humble myself before God? Well, Peter tells us, verse 7, 1 Peter 5 and 7, Casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. A great expression of humility is telling God all of your worries, all of your anxieties, all the things you're concerned about. Tell Him. That is an act of humility. When you express gratitude to God and pray for the things that you need, it's like you take that great, big, puffed-up, arrogant, conceited you and you stick a pin in it. And it just sort of comes down. Just You can make that sound even if it just kind of feels good. Yeah, a few of you did that. Doesn't that feel good? That feel good. That's right. And so what you're doing is, well, how do I do that? I thank God for things. When I'm thanking God, I'm saying, I don't deserve the credit. You deserve the credit. And Lord, I need you. I can't love my family the way that I should without you. I can't be patient with people without your help. I'm worried, Lord. I'm worried that I'm going to fall short. I'm worried that I'm going to fail. A little prayer I prayed a few minutes ago before I got up here. God, don't abandon me up there. Help me to preach a sermon that's beyond me. That's how you're going to put aside pride in your life. You need to pray. Giving thanks making your requests known to Him. Oh, and by the way, just as a bonus, God answers prayers too. (laughs) So not only will it help address your pride, it will actually help you with the thing you need help with. Try it. Just try it. And come tell me if I'm wrong. Number three, how else can you put aside pride? Well, reviewing the gospel, giving thanks, expressing need in prayer. Number three, by reminding yourself of the dangers of pride. You just sort of review where we went already today, but the big one for me, and it comes to my mind, Uh, probably not often enough, but it comes there, is God opposes the proud. 
Okay. That verse, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if it helps, imagine yourself on the tennis court. It's Serena Williams against you. I'm going to lose, right? Remind yourself, if I, when I persist in arrogance and conceit, God takes up the opposition. It's a dangerous thing. I'm going to ruin relationships. So remind yourself of the dangers of pride. Number four, how can I put aside pride? By identifying God's grace toward others by identifying, by pointing out, by naming God's grace toward others. This is what Paul does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. If you've read through the book, and some of you have recently read through the book because we're studying from it, you know that this is a church that had big problems. You know, If we allowed ourselves to be the slightest bit arrogant, we'd feel no matter how bad things were going here some days, we would always feel better about ourselves because of the church of Corinth. Like, well, at least we're not as bad as them. Oop, that's pride. I'm not going to be like that. But, you, you know, you, the church of Corinth had problems. And yet, one of the first things that Paul tells them is he tells them about the evidences of God's grace in them or the, the good things that he sees in them because of God's favor to them. That's where he, be, he begins his letter. Back in 1 Corinthians 1 and 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Really? These people were arrogant, fighting Christians. God was disciplining them. How can you give thanks for a church like this? Because he could see some things. He says, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. See, he looked at these Corinthian believers and he saw them and all of their foibles and said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and them. He talked about good things that he saw in them, uh, how the, the Lord was working in terms of their speech and their positive testimony, and, and on and on he went. When you look and see the good things that God is doing in their lives and point them out, it helps to deflate the ego. Because when I look at you and I see, while well, God is changing you, God is growing you, you, you're not the person you used to be. I'm taking the attention away from me and putting it firstly on God and also encouraging my brothers and my brother or sister. And that, loved ones, is loving. It's loving. Identifying God's grace in others. You want to put a pin in that inflated you? Point out God's goodness to other people. Number five, I can put aside pride by welcoming godly correction. By welcoming godly correction. Hebrews 3 and 13 says, But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Pride, just like many other sins, often goes unnoticed. I read this little story yesterday, and uh, I thought this is great. The author says, as I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, just imagine yourself in this situation. As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he, was, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. 
It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and as I watched, he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go out into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? Now, just for fun, what would you do? Would you say something? Would you stop him? I have to be honest with you. I have to be honest. I often just choose to mind my own business in situations like this. But would that be very loving? What if you were that man with a glob of cream cheese on your face walking into an important meeting? Surely, you standing up and saying, excuse me, sir, you have something on your face, that would be embarrassing for him, wouldn't it? He'd be, he'd be embarrassed, like, oh my goodness, right? And, you know, and he'd have all those feelings go along with being embarrassed. <laughs> but how much more devastated would he be walking into his important meeting with that on his face? Which would be worse? If you were the man with cream cheese in your face, wouldn't you far rather have that awkward, regretful conversation with the person who jumps up in front of you before you go out the door and say, you got cream cheese all over you? Wouldn't you rather that than to go out and to torpedo that next thing in your life because some of Philadelphia's finest is on your face? If you're agreeing with me, then you're beginning to understand what the Scripture says about the role of correction in your life and mine. Nobody wants to be told that they're wrong. Nobody. And if there's a lineup of people who don't like to be told that they're wrong, I'm somewhere near the front. Because just like a few of you, I've got to deal with pride in my life. But when you think about the effects of being unloving, Paul says you accomplish nothing, you are nothing, you gain nothing. When you think about the damage that's done from being unloving, the relational ruin, the, the poor testimony, when you think about it, wouldn't you far prefer to have somebody have an awkward, difficult conversation with you and lovingly correct you to go on the way of the Lord than to go out and do untold damage in your church or in your family or in your community? Wouldn't you rather... That's why I say, if you want to deal with pride, then welcome godly correction. When somebody corrects you, thank them for it. Even if you don't think that they're right, even if you don't think that they're right, before you get defensive, say thank you for that. You could say, you know, I've never thought of that. I need to think about that. I need to reflect on that. And then to do that, to reflect on that. Maybe they are wrong. Maybe they're just jealous of you. I don't know. But fools reject wisdom. And unloving people are people who will not be corrected. So that's how you deal with pride, by welcoming godly correction. Two more things briefly. Number six, how can I put aside pride? Reviewing the gospel, giving thanks and expressing need in prayer, reminding yourself of the dangers of pride, identifying God's grace in others, welcoming godly correction. Number six, by staying in touch with reality. By staying in touch with reality. Again, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? 
remind yourself of reality. If it were not for the grace of God, I would be heading to a lost eternity. Number seven, how can I put aside pride? This may be the biggest one. You put aside pride by getting a new heart. By getting a new heart. This is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied by Ezekiel in the Old Testament. When you look forward to this new covenant now, this new uh, standing, this new covenant we have now with God through Jesus. And he said this, he prophesied, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone, that hard, arrogant, conceited heart. I'll remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a tender, supple heart, receptive to God's rule in my life. How you deal with pride is you get with Jesus. And when you trust in Him, one of the great promises of the Gospel, that God changes you on the inside. The Bible says, Jesus says, that when you come to Him, when you trust in Him, you are born again. You're taken from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And there's a surgery God does there. It's not physical, it's spiritual, where He takes you and He changes you decisively on the inside and gives to you desires you never had before, desires to please God, desires to live for Him, joy in obeying Him. And when He goes to work, when He does this in you, in the moment that you're saved, He begins a good work in you that could never be accomplished without Him first making you alive and giving you a new heart. You see, I want to close here today because I want you to understand that you can try tricks and strategies to try to be a better you. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you have Jesus. Because the very nature of the kind of love we are talking about is not a love in the worldly sense of being, being worldly kind, but living a life that loves others because God loves you and has welcomed you in Jesus. Loving people out of a new heart that God has placed in you by His grace and by His goodness. And the starting point of that, to, to do that, you say, well, how do I do that? It starts here. Humble yourself before the Lord. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. It starts with admitting, Lord, I need you. It starts with admitting, my sin is the problem. It starts with admitting, Lord Jesus, I need you to save me, to save me from me, to save me from a lost eternity. I need you and I want you to come in and rescue me from sin and to give me a new life, and to begin to remove this pride from my life by your grace on the grounds of forgiveness. Will you trust in Jesus for that? Dear friend, will you trust in Him? Will you look to Him? Will you today ask Him to come and give to you a new heart? And my dear brothers and sisters who have those new hearts because of Christ, will you today seek the Lord's help to deal with pride? Will you this week take time to review these things that we've spoken of and apply them to yourself? What steps will you take? What steps will you take this week to deflate self and to be this loving person that God has saved you to be? Let's pray together.